Welcome to the LSE for this online event. Um, my name is Amelia Peterson and I'm a fellow in social policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Dr. Amelia Roberts, Yolanta Lasota and Nikki Martin to the LSE today. Dr. Amelia Roberts is Deputy Director of the UCL Centre for Inclusive Education. She works internationally and with UK local authorities and school alliances to improve the attainment and participation of pupils with special educational needs and disabilities. Yolanta Lasota is Chief Executive of Ambitious About Autism, which is a national charity for children and young people with autism. It provides services, raises awareness and understanding, and influences policy. She also chairs the uh, Autism Education Trust, a not-for-profit programme which is funded by the UK Department for Education. Professor Nicola Martin was formerly head of the Disability and Wellbeing Service at LSE, and she now heads up the Critical Autism and Disability Studies Research Group at London South Bank University, where she's Professor of Social Justice and Inclusive Education. On this International Day of People with Disabilities and in the midst of a global pandemic, our speakers will be reflecting on what needs to be done for children and adults with disabilities to have equal access and opportunities in education. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE COVID-19. Um, and this is an online event being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the speakers. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen and questions will be submitted to myself and I'll pose as many as possible to the speakers. Um, please let us know your name and affiliation and we're particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students. So please do let us know if that applies to you. But now I'm delighted to hand over to Dr. Amelia Roberts. And good news, I've remembered to unmute. It is a huge honour to be asked to be a panellist for this important LSE event. And I'm delighted to be opening with a little look at inclusion and how far we've come and perhaps how far we still have to come. And in order to stimulate the debate, I've asked the organisers to show a short two minute film, which is basically a television advertisement that many of you will have seen it's being played in the UK at the moment and this is why I want to highlight it I'm showing the American version and I'm interested in your thoughts around inclusion and attitudes that are highlighted by this particular advertisement so please do put your comments and thoughts in the chat as you watch it Six-year-old Asawa doesn't smile anymore because the other children won't play with him. For Ailu, it's a struggle just to eat or drink. Zenu can't bear to hear the names they call her. Alan is too frightened to go outside anymore. He just wishes the loneliness will go away. For children living with untreated clefts in the developing world, their lives can be filled with heartache and pain. Some will face a life of isolation, sickness, and infection. Many will struggle just to eat, or drink, or even breathe. But a safe surgery could change their life forever. Please, will you do something incredible today and help them smile? Visit supportsmiletrain.org or call the toll-free number below with your gift of $21 a month to Smile Train. 
That's only 70 cents a day. And when you do, you'll help a child with an untreated cleft get the safe surgery that will change their life forever. When you sign up with your monthly gift, you'll receive regular updates and photos of the children you've helped save. You can help these children feel like they belong again, give them a chance to learn, to play, and be accepted. You'll help take away the pain and give them a new smile, a future, a chance to shine. Just call the number below or visit supportsmiletrain.org with your gift of only 70 cents a day. But please, do it today. Because a child like Ailu needs to know there's hope for the future. Go online or call now. Okay, so this charity is seeking to raise money for meeting the medical needs of children. And that is absolutely great. The question that I have is some of the assumptions that are blanketed into this video. So I'm just going to read you some of these phrases. Six-year-old Asawa doesn't smile anymore because the other children don't play with him. Zinu can't bear to hear the names they call her. Alan is too frightened to go outside anymore. He just wishes the loneliness would go away. One particular image of the young girl being excluded from her playmates particularly haunts me. It's said that she's facing a life of isolation. And then the advertisement wraps up by saying, you can help these children feel like they belong again. Give them a chance to play and be accepted. Now, we are here to celebrate the work done by Alf Morris 50 years ago in putting the Act in 1970, the Chronically Sick and Disabled Persons Act together. And I think Alf would be really disappointed that in an advertisement that's being broadcast in the UK, the assumptions are still that it's the disability that's causing the loneliness and the disability that's preventing acceptance and the disability that is making children unable to play or make friends. And what really horrifies me in this advertisement is that there is no attempt to unwrap the disability from the attitudes around social exclusion. So it seems to me that 50 years on from Alf Morris's work, we are still faced with deeply endemic social attitudes around people with disabilities. And these attitudes are seen on a daily basis. So it's something that I really wanted to challenge. In the original act, the four key areas that Alf was addressing was providing practical assistance, home adaptations, access to recreational services, and meals. So if you like, it was the forerunner of social inclusion and the changing of attitudes began then. And in many ways, we, we have moved forward so much. And I want, to, I want to discuss what's happening in schools at the moment because a huge amount of work has been done. And in 2014, the Children and Families Act put some profound messages into the education system. 
And we looked very much about a much more person-centered approach. We placed much more importance in gathering the voice and views of children, parents, carers, and families. We also talked very much in education about what's known as the graduated response to need. So we're thinking about how needs can be met in the mainstream environment and that we should be thinking about differentiation in the classroom. We should be thinking about attitudes and relationships. We should be thinking about the systemic approach to supporting young people in schools. And I just wanted to share briefly with you a piece of work that we're doing called, it's a, a piece of research called Wellbeing and Behaviour, identifying interventions for positive participation for young people at risk of exclusion in school in order to reduce adverse long-term societal impact. And one of the things that we think about in terms of reducing exclusions is thinking about all the micro-level exclusions that can occur in school. And micro-level exclusions might happen at that point when a young person approaches a group of children in a playground, wants to join in that game and is excluded from it. Another micro-exclusion might be a child in a lesson who is unable to access a particular activity in that lesson, so they are excluded. And one of the things that we're looking at is how micro-exclusions bundled together and form part of the roadmap whereby exclusions happen in a more fundamental and um, irreversible way. And one of the ways that we seek to address this is through a knowledge exchange program, which we call SWIRL, standing for Supporting Wellbeing, Emotional Resilience and Learning. And in the case of this particular piece of research, we're combining SWIRL with social pedagogy ideals. And what this means is that we are looking at the role of whole school systems that underpin inclusion. And to do that, we think about several domains so that schools can start to analyse what they are doing as a whole system to support inclusive practice. And I'm just going to briefly share four of those domains with you. One of the domains is building relationships and whether the concept of relationship, person-to-person -person relationship, is at the heart of the school curriculum. So this would include friendships, peer-to-peer -peer friendships, but it would also include the relationship between schools, parents, carers, and families. It would include the relationships between teachers and playground staff, or teachers and teaching assistants, and it would also include relationships between teaching staff and children. But thinking about relationships, and how they support inclusion. Another domain is robust communication systems. Whose role is it to do what? Who takes responsibility for what? Who holds the story of a particular child? Whose role is it to communicate? Whose role is it to gather communications from different stakeholders? Another element, and this is one that I feel really passionately about, is the role of the teacher. So thinking about the accessibility of a lesson, who needs an activity at the beginning of a lesson that helps them to settle, helps their brain to think back to what they've learned previously in a um, particular class? Who needs four or five minutes for their 
limbic system to calm down after play? Who needs time to reactivate vocabulary so that they can access the curriculum? Who needs time to process thinking before they are expected to write or read or listen? Because all of these activities can be really challenging for children with special educational needs and or disabilities. So the role of the lesson, making sure that activities are challenging at the right level, exciting, engaging, interesting, and crucially using collaborative learning so you can really activate interest in the curriculum and make sure that children leave each lesson knowing that they are clever and knowing that they have achieved something. And then finally, the fourth domain that I just want to share with you is thinking about whole system planning and design. So if a school perhaps invests in a really wonderful strategy like nurturing curriculum or they have really great provision in place, but on the other hand, their behaviour policy is still punitive of certain children or children who lack organisational skills or children who don't have support from home then the thinking is not joined up and the energy that's going into one part of the system is being drained by something that isn't right in the other part. So I have promised to speak only for 10 minutes and my cue has just arrived. So that was just me starting the ball rolling, thinking about inclusion and thinking particularly about how we can think about whole school environments so that we can educate equally. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Roberts. Um, just a reminder for the audience, if you have questions at this point, please do put them in the Q&A um, and we'll save them all for the end. Uh, so for now, I'll just pass to Yolanda Lasota. Thank you, Amelia. Um, the subject of tonight's lecture is deeply important to our charity. In many ways, the evolution of our charity has mirrored the changes in society and legislation over the past 50 years. Um, Ambitious About Autism is a national charity of children and young people with autism, and we were founded in 1997 by a group of brave and pioneering parents who were determined to create a better education system, not just for their children, but for all autistic children and young people. Something that was a real challenge even back in 1997, and still is now to a degree, as we'll, we'll talk later. Our mission is to make the ordinary possible for autistic children. And that's an ambition I think was embedded in the act. And we do that by delivering pioneering education, employment services and campaigning for change. It is difficult to believe that just 50 years ago, within a generation, disabled children and young people had no legal right to education support. These children were born into a society that defined them on medical terms as problems to be solved. They had very little hope of being treated as equal, respected and valued members of our communities. They were denied many fundamental rights, but being denied the right to education was arguably one of the most injurious, limiting their potential to learn, thrive and be part of a community. For these reasons, it can't be overestimated how revolutionary the, the act was in changing lives of disabled children. Children previously deemed uneducable were given equal access to education and support under law. Local authorities were given the duty to provide special educational facilities for children and that these should be on par with what was provided for other children. So much has changed in 50 years. Inspired by this activism, society's views of disability began to shift away from the medical view of disability as a fault to a social model focused on removing barriers placed 
on disabled children by society. The shift in attitude away from disabled children and young people being seen as a problem has hugely increased their representation and inclusion in mainstream schools and wider society. When the Act was first introduced, there were very few disabled pupils being educated in mainstream schools. Now we see 72% of autistic pupils in mainstream schools. Sadly, though, however, as a leader of a charity focused on defending these hard-earned rights, I know that there are still many problems in the education system for disabled young people, and particularly I'm, I'm aware of all the problems for autistic young people. There is still a lack of understanding, and more worryingly, a lack of ambition about what autistic young people can achieve with the right support. Too often, instead, they face exclusion and bullying in education, resulting in very poor outcomes in school and then in adulthood. This really impacts in terms of individual lives, lost talent for employers in our wider society and a massive £32 billion a year in the public purse annually. For me, there are three key areas we need to address. We need to provide an education system that is personalised, participatory and purposeful. Beginning with personalised education, every autistic child is different, so getting to know them as individuals and personalising education and support is crucial. And indeed, that is true for all children. A one-size-fits-all approach simply doesn't work. To achieve this, we have to help young people to get a diagnosis early. And that is still a difficulty, but that diagnosis has to be followed by a person-centred assessment that focuses on their interests, their strengths and their goals. We need to move away from labels to supporting outcomes. While doing this, we need to move away from an outdated measure of what success in education looks like. Too often, we make incorrect assumptions about what people can and cannot achieve based on our own conscious and unconscious biases. This is especially true for children, young people who are minimally verbal and have learning disabilities. We make enormous assumptions about their capabilities. And additionally, our education system and society more broadly is still more focused on cognition than other strengths, strengths that are equally important and just as valuable, such as collaboration and kindness. Secondly, we need to work on our system being truly participatory. Autistic children, young people and their families are amongst the most marginalised and disadvantaged in our society. A significant proportion of those we support are from black and Asian minority ethnic communities, and we, need, we know this makes them even more at risk of discrimination. We also know that children from poorer backgrounds with parents who don't have the means or ability to advocate on their behalf face yet more barriers. The various intersectional barriers of race, poverty, disability and others compounded with a general lack of understanding and awareness of autism is leaving autistic young people and more broadly disabled people absent from our communities and our schools. Our research has found that exclusion of autistic pupils from schools has increased by 60% in five years. We also know there are over 2,000 people with learning disabilities and autism in secure inpatient units in England, receiving care many miles away from their communities and often never returning home. It shouldn't have to be like this, and we need to try and remove the stigma and increase inclusion. 
in order to do that, we need to create an education system that engages and promotes participation with autistic young people and listens and responds to their views and needs. Too often in education, there's a lack of understanding from teachers and staff about what an autistic person needs to be able to thrive in a classroom. Not having this knowledge leads to meltdowns, breakdowns, and results in their removal from classrooms or worse, from schools altogether. Training for professionals is key. We're going to see a rollout of mandatory training on autism in and learning disability in health and care, but we need to see this mandated and embedded in education. And continuous learning from autistic children and young people will enable us to strive for a truly inclusive education system. Finally, I'd like to talk about purposefulness. We always talk about place when it comes to disabled children. We often don't talk about purpose. We need to be ambitious for young people and provide them with education and enable them to reach their goals, whatever they might be. And those goals may seem atypical in our society. This work must be underpinned by an education system that is geared towards best outcomes for every child. And it must be delivered by educators who see the whole child and tailor support to their needs and circumstances. It's vital it happens urgently because sadly, despite some progress at the moment, too many autistic young people face very poor outcomes in education. This results in only 16% of autistic being, people being in full-time paid employment with similar amounts in part-time employment with an overall employment rate of 32%. That is not the problem of young autistic people not wanting to work. The problem is too often the assumption is they can't. And we know 99% of autistic young people say they want to work, but only 19% have good careers advice. Ambitious about autism, we're currently running an employment programme called Employ Autism, which is focusing on systematic change. We're currently working with educators, employers across the country to build a model and a bridge between education and work. We show employers that with a little bit of adaptation, imagination, and inclusive ethos, autistic employees can not only survive, but thrive in a workplace. And we've had some fantastic results. So in conclusion, I think still too often, society has created a massive filing system for disabled children. We label people and we put them in folders that suit us and are informed by our own biases. It's archaic, it's difficult to escape from, it's life limiting and it's expensive, both in terms of actual cost and lost opportunity. Every child has a right to receive a fulfilling education. No child should ever be filed away. We need a new, more person-centered and flexible education system, free from conscious and unconscious biases and focused on positive outcomes. We shouldn't do this because we think it'll save money. We can't and should not put a price on children's lives. We should do it because every autistic child and young person has something to contribute and a right to participate, even if we lack the imagination yet to see this. Thank you. Thank you so much. So many inspiring aspects there. I look forward to, to hearing more about all of them. Uh, but I'll pass now to Professor Martin. Hello, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be back at the LSE. Um, as in my introduction, it was mentioned that I used to be head of disability and wellbeing services at the LSE for many years. And in my present role in my research centre, 
the idea of nothing about us without us characterizes all the research we do. So this um, talk is very heavily influenced by the voices of disabled students and former disabled students. So disabled students talk about university often as a life-changing experience, which has enabled them to develop academically and socially. I frequently heard students talk about the pivotal role that, that the encouragement they receive from individual members of staff in school and at university, as well as their parents, has played in their lives. This person might be an eminent academic who has taken the time to say, I believe that you are academically capable of succeeding in this course. It could be a teacher who's gone the extra mile to find out how university might be feasible, or it could be a student union officer who's made sure Freshers' Week is accessible and therefore opened the doors to social inclusion. Disabled students have also highlighted annoying barriers to their success, which have involved them in having to explain their requirements again and again in ways which have made them question the commitment of university to inclusive practice and the notion of belonging. First point to make is that disabled students who have secured a university place have overcome many barriers already and they are entitled under the 2010 Equality Act to an equitable experience of all aspects of university life with their peers, including during the pandemic. In 2011 at LSE, we had a conference, a disability identity, disability pride conference, in which disability was celebrated as a valued aspect of diversity, rather than problematized in a way that is unhelpful for disabled students. The social model of disability is a good starting point for thinking about inclusive practice. It's based on the assumption that people who have impairments can be disabled by socially constructed barriers to their full participation. The obvious example is a flight of stairs and the lack of thought on the part of the person who organised a meeting in an, in an inaccessible venue without anticipating that somebody with a mobility impairment might wish to attend. The word anticipating is crucial as the Equality Act places anticipatory duties on public bodies in relation to inclusive practice. Joined up thinking is essential in order to demolish barriers and build up enablers even during the pandemic. The student might, for example, be extremely academically capable, but feel quite defeated because expectations are communicated ambiguously or assumptions are made about their understanding of how university operates. I was involved in a project at Cambridge with autistic students where we came up with the acronym REAL, which stands for Reliable, Empathic, Anticipatory and Logical. We use this to communicate that students thrive when people and systems are reliable, problems are anticipated and circumvented, empathy enables an understanding of the student's experience and logical communication reduces ambiguity. REAL doesn't just apply to disabled students, of course. Focusing on transition, prospective disabled students and parents of younger students need to know what support is available at university, which means that staff involved in transition need to know and need to share this information. This does not necessarily happen systematically, although universities can embed disability concerns into outreach widening participation activities. The 2014 Children of Families Act which emphasises joint working between education, health and social care, looked at transition in education up to 25, but de-emphasised university in favour of FE, apprenticeships and employment. 
A prospective student with medical needs, for example, might well need the sort of joined up approach between agencies because the disabled students allowance will not cover all their requirements. Individual disabled students also talked about not being encouraged at school. For example, Greg, who had a life limiting condition, none of his teachers talked to him about going to university because he was going to have a short life. And James was never taken on a university visit because people thought he wouldn't cope well with it. He did go to Oxford in the end. Sources of support, including the Disabled Students Allowance for UK students currently under review. DSA can pay for various bespoke resources, including assistive technology, note taking. DSA has never been an option for international disabled students, whether UK based or studying at UK university global campuses. DSA processes can be bureaucratic and result in necessary adjustments not being in place from the beginning of a student's course. A DSA needs assessment can be daunting, especially if framed in deficit model language. As a DSA assessor, I asked a student with top grade who gained admission to a top university, Oxbridge, how he would like me to describe him in the report. And his response was, I used to be a special needs child. So we'll just park that there. Some students who have managed at school find that their dyslexia, for example, only reveals itself at university when they do not do well in their first assignment. Not only is this experience negative in itself, it's then followed by delays in gaining support and not all universities pay for a dyslexia assessment, which is a further barrier. All universities have disability services, but not every disabled student will access them. Some feel stigmatised, others do not identify as disabled, some choose to reinvent themselves and some can't get past the barrier of a required diagnostic label. Disability equality is however a shared responsibility and the Equality Act is very clear that all aspects of university life should be accessible to disabled students and others with protected characteristics under the Act and about the intersection between these characteristics. The review of provision of disabled students instigated by David Willits in 2014 is built on the idea that over-reliance on DSA is not sustainable and the sector should progress towards more inclusive practice based on principles of universal design for learning. While it's accepted that some bespoke adjustments will always be required for individuals, for example, British Sign Language Interpretation, a solid foundation of inclusive practice, including things like lecture capture and ICT, which conforms to accessibility standards, will reduce the requirement for bespoke adjustments and will benefit many. Simply, UDL means planning for the inclusion of all learners in all aspects of university life. This implies senior leadership buy-in and teamwork throughout the student journey from pre-entry to post-exit. Widening participation colleagues therefore need to understand how to advise prospective disabled students. Transition teachers and careers advisors need to know how university can assist disabled students. Residential services staff, student union organisers, ICT, library, careers professionals and everybody else need to think inclusively and work together. University careers advisors must understand systems such as access to work designed to assist disabled employees once they graduate. Teams need to work together in order to make the whole offer accessible to all students. A recent Society for Research in Higher Education study, for example, 
revealed that students don't necessarily know what sort of services are available to assist them with their learning and staff are not clear enough to signpost them effectively. The joined up map of services would help in this regard. Just before the pandemic, if we can remember that far back, the Office for Students drew together the Disabled Student Commission at the behest of the university's minister. This is an independent group of senior leaders tasked with progressing towards a more inclusive HE sector. In July this year, the group produced a report entitled Three Months to Make a Difference, which focused on accessibility around the pandemic and beyond. It considered all sorts of um, different avenues, including clearing, delays in DSA assessment, induction, accessibility standards for ICT, every aspect of teaching and learning. A key message from the pandemic is that practices which were once viewed as unreasonable variations and compromising of academic standards have become necessary in order for universities to operate during the pandemic. Practices such as recording lectures, asynchronous delivery, taking exams at home are now essential and could be sustained. Quality impact assessment of new approaches need to take an intersectional view and consider the requirements of all students by looking through the lens of universal design for learning and its potential long-term benefit for all students during and after the pandemic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for all the presentations. Uh, we'll now open the floor to questions from the audience. So please type short questions into the Q&A box and we'll try to answer as many as possible. Um, and please, if possible, include your name and affiliation. I'm going to start there with a question from, from Facebook, from Chris on Facebook. Um, this is perhaps particularly for Yolanta, but Amelia and Nikki do, do chip in as well. Um, so Chris is saying, you know, if autism is really a gift to be celebrated as opposed to a disease or a disorder to be treated, how do we go about changing public perceptions and provisions? Um, so perhaps one suggestion for starting there. Um, so thank you for that question. That's a great question. I, I think um, the main way of um, increasing people's understanding is through having contact with autistic people um, and actually for people to understand um, the whole spectrum of uh, the whole autistic spectrum and to understand that it's 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 I think people have some very old-fashioned views about it being a linear spectrum with people who are more cognitively able and less cognitively able and there's there's some very very rigid views still in our society about autism and disability so I think the most important way is to actually meet people and to have awareness courses developed and delivered, co-produced with um, autistic young people and adults. And, and I think that's a great way of um, busting a lot of those myths. Brilliant. Yeah, Nikki, do come in. Absolutely, just completely endorsing that. But just to say as well, something that we've set up in our Critical Autism and Disability Studies Research Group is a, a principle that all autism research includes properly paid autistic researchers and we set up something called the PARC which is the Participatory Autism Research Collective which is just a, a collective which enables autistic researchers to network, work together, support each other and become a, a body that can contribute to autism research really effectively and anybody who's interested in the PARC just google it and you know it's inclusive you can join 
also that people who identify as autistic but do not have a diagnostic label because it's hard to come by in adulthood, you can join too. And if I just chip in there as well, I think it's also about questioning daily messages, which is why I brought up the advertisement. Because if a little girl is sitting by the fence and not playing, that isn't because she has a cleft palate. It's because she's not being included. And I think we have to question messages that otherwise subtly seep into our consciousness. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, we've got a question from Dee Stivie uh, about today. It's been announced that all secondary students taking exams next year will have their grades adjusted upwards in the light of COVID. So in the light of the challenges that disabled students face in school, should a similar affirmative action be formalised in perpetuity for their university admission? I bet you're looking at me, aren't you? <laughs> that It's a complex question, isn't it? Because um, I think other speakers have said this, of course, the whole thing about individuality. Um, disabled students are not a homoge homogeneous group and people with the same impairment are not a homogeneous group. And some disabled students get absolutely top grades and the difficulties they experience in university are nothing to do with their academic ability. And they may well feel incredibly patronised if their grades are massaged in some way. Because it's like saying um, you couldn't really manage it, could you, because of your disability? So we've upped your grade a little bit and that could be a reaction. On the other hand, some students experience really significant barriers. For example, I think um, there are very few um, pre-lingually deaf students in Russell Group universities because of the um, A-level requirements. I think subtle things like that might need looking at, but... I don't think we can have a blanket response to that question at this stage without absolutely involving disabled people in the discussion and not making an assumption and doing a one size fits all thing. But it's only come out today, so I haven't really got my head around it. I don't know what my colleagues think. Um, I don't mind chipping in. I, I think it's about what um, we are seeing in, in the system at the moment is, is flexibility and support. And what we should be seeing is far more flexibility and support for disabled students at school um, through those exams. And, you know, many students still fight to get basic adjustments, um, you know, and there are still lots, even people who are highly specialised, still struggle to actually understand what adjustments can and can't be put in place. And I think the all of the standards around adjustments need to be rewritten now we've been through COVID because we've just seen what's possible and what's not possible. Um, I also think, I go back to my theme of personalisation, I think technology is enabling us to be much more personalised the way that we assess people. Um, and we need to think about how we create much more sophisticated ways of assessing people for admission, whether it's university or college or work. Um, we're very stuck in in, in sort of very, um, very broad silos rather than very much more nuanced admissions policies wherever we are in society. Yeah, I completely agree. And one barrier which comes up again and again and again for dyslexic students, well, people who don't get you to university because they weren't at the point where they could get GCSE English and maths when they were at the age when they had to do their GCSE English and maths and access courses which make that requirement they're not really access courses in my view because it's like oh yeah you don't really belong because you didn't get GCSE English and maths when you were 16 
you know, people develop at different rates. So I just, and I just wanted to chip in there that exam access arrangements are a really good example of intersectionality mm. because, of course, the ability to get those arrangements um, depends on your socioeconomic status and the where the school is located as well as your family's resources. So one would imagine that those access arrangements can be applied fairly and they are intended to be applied fairly, but actually they are still vulnerable to the um, disadvantage gap issues. Absolutely. That really links to our next question, which is uh, predominantly for, for Nikki, but actually uh, all of you will comment, I think, on um, whether you can elaborate on how we can use an intersectional analysis um, of our approaches to teaching and to universal design for learning. For Well, thinking particularly about the pandemic, um, well, just to go back to the Equality Act, the nine protected characteristics which, in you know, intersect with each other. So, for example, you can be disabled and gay, who knew? The protected characteristics do not include socioeconomic status. And, you know, the politics of that is fairly obvious, isn't it? But I think taking an intersectional lens which includes socioeconomic status has been incredibly important during the pandemic because some people are experiencing extreme digital poverty and they were using computers at university which is now closed so a family say of five people all trying to do their schooling and their university and their work on one mobile phone are not in any way in the same boat as as a group who beats got their own laptop and a secure internet connection so those aspects of international intersectionality which consider socioeconomic status as if it's a protected characteristic are really important and another aspect of intersectionality which i think is incredibly important is that some disabled people experience stigma around disability whereas other disabled people are very out and proud about it because of the culture in which they were brought up and the family in which they were brought up. And it's very easy to assume, for example, every autistic person, for example, will go to university, bang on the door of the disability office and say, I'm autistic, I need this, that and the other. In practice, people have all sorts of different personal reactions may have chosen not to identify as disabled for all sorts of other things which are going on for them around previous experience of bullying, all sorts of things. So I think if you met one person with X impairment, you've met one person with X impairment. Everything that is going on in their life as well is really relevant. If you're the first per first person in your family to go to university, you don't necessarily have the social capital that somebody who's got two professors for parents will have, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just saying it's it's subtle in relation to intersectionality. But the immediate thing, I think, is socioeconomic status in relation to access to learning during the pandemic. That's the I, if I had to make a priority list, I'd put that at the top. We'll get into a question from Jane Chapman, um, who's really loved all the ideas about what can be done and wondered about any particular examples of practice of schools, how they're embedding things into a kind of whole school approach. Um, I'm happy to start that one off. Um, I would say that I see astonishingly good practice in a lot of schools. So I, I think there's some real hope there. I, we see really passionate teachers and head teachers 
very talented teaching assistants. I, I would say that the overall picture, as I perceive it, is really positive in many schools. But that's not to say that a good deal of work isn't to be done. If you want one quick steer as to something that I think is really powerful, it would be lesson study. And lesson study is a really powerful structure that schools can take on board, which enables teachers to jointly plan lessons, looking at and focusing on one or two focused children and scrutinizing, observing how they're responding to different activities, then coming back and replanning the lesson. So it's a structure that's sustainable and it enables teachers to work together to be really rigorous and proactive about how they're meeting the needs of young people. So that single thing, I think, can be incredibly transformative. And I'm happy to give if, uh, I've lots of examples. So there's some real positives to say out there. I mean, I chair the Autism Education Trust and the Autism Education Trust is working with over 70 local authorities that are embedding um, autism standards across the school. So this is a universal standard. And uh, we in our own schools at Ambitious About Autism have a tiered system of support. And I think what's really important is the bits that people really struggle with is, I think, the universal level. So people often go towards individualised support rather than thinking, how can they create enabling environments through that universal tier? And in our schools, for example, um, well-being is built proactively into the curriculum. So throughout the day, we, um, for example, have yoga and uh, mindfulness to help people uh, to calm and to access um, their learning. And that's considered universal. Um, and obviously, there are tiered approaches after that. But I think teaching schools that this isn't about uh, you know, huge amounts of expenditure and, um, you know, uh, specialists in every school. This is really about changing the universal system. And we do see many, many schools. If you go to the Autism Education Trust website, you see many, many schools applying universal systems. Um, most adjustments are minute. They are a couple of hundred pounds of that. Um, and so the idea that you have to sell a tape, a teaching assistant to every person who have a special educational need, I think we've proven that that's wrong many years ago. And just can I just comment on transition to university? I think it's incredibly important to um, get away from the tyranny of low expectation. I think that is incredibly important. But also that um, students don't start university fully formed. And it's very easy to have this sort of deficit model approach. So what we tried to do this year at South Bank is we've developed a pre-entry self-assessment for all students, which says, Nobody starts university knowing all these things like, do you know how to do Harvard referencing? Probably not. Most people don't. So the student carries out a self-assessment and the self-assessment signposts them to resources which tell them how to do the things they're really scared to admit that they don't know how to do. So they develop their own action plan and then they develop an understanding of all the services that are available to them across the university in a joined up map. And they are being proactive about developing academically rather than waiting until the first assignment's been and gone and trying to sort of mask the fact that they are struggling. And it's just trying to change the narrative really, just flip that narrative so that students don't think, 
I'm either a student that can do it or a student that can't do it. And there's everything in between because all students are on that journey and it's just making it so ordinary. And then we blur those boundaries between disabled and non-disabled in, in, a, in a helpful way, I think. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really speaking to the comment there about transitions and kind of how people can navigate those. Um, we've got a question from, from Claire Dorothy uh, about the fact that schools and, and consequently teachers are routinely judged publicly by fixed set of published criteria that are sort of broadly based on academic outcomes, predominantly GCSE results, as well as external inspections. And so in the kind of current political climate, how can schools also demonstrate kind of softer, inclusive outcomes? That's a really interesting question. Um, um, gosh, I think pupil voice would be a really powerful way to move forward on this one. But to find ways to give a platform to young people so that they can share their stories and narratives, I think would be a really good place to start. So I am tempted to talk a bit about case studies, but also showcasing what's happening, showcasing the diversity of activities and the diversity of people involved in those activities would seem to me to be a really powerful way forward. I would also say blogs, writing articles for the National um, College of Teachers, um, challenging the way schools are measured as well. I don't think it's all about accepting that the status quo is necessarily the right way forward. It's about coming together as a group to maybe challenge some of those structures as well. Um, I think I would really support that. And I think what's really important is that there are opportunities within the Ofsted framework to really think about equalising, for example, personal development with um, academic achievement. Um, and every school is able to set out its own stall. So, you know, not, not every school has to um, conform with the same expectations. And I think Ofsted is gradually looking more for schools to create a, a rounded curriculum, a rounded environment. Um, examples of where we've tried to, in the Autumn Education Trust, for example, create things. We have created a progression framework which demonstrates progression in um, social skills, emotional skills. So it's actually formalised and can be aligned when reporting progress against all other aspects of, of, of education. Um, but I, I do think that there needs to be a national recognition that uh, we need to return to a system that has a much broader view of progression and attainment for children and does actually measure added value. I dread to use that word because it feels like an ancient word now. But, but without that, we do have a perverse incentive to drive leadership towards very narrow measures of, of achievement. Yeah, I would just say, since this is sort of one of my areas of research around school accountability systems, that there's a really interesting moment, you know, as everything with the pandemic, um, there's kind of a bit of an opening where, as with exams, Ofsted are also, um, you know, having to change some ways about how they're doing things. And just as you say, Yolanta, there is actually quite a lot of scope in their frameworks. They're really interested in getting a broader perspective of, of what schools do and, and inclusion should absolutely be, be a part of that. Um, fantastic. So just to encourage, if there's any one last question that anyone wants to, to bring in here, otherwise I'll just turn back to the speakers to see if we have, um, uh, oh, fantastic. Sorry, I've just seen one come in from Simon Phillips uh, that was here earlier. So uh, this is Simon Phillips from the Institute of Contemporary Music Performance uh, here in London. So how can we move to bridge 
the gap between you know, pre-higher education to higher education to try and address this story of students uh, arriving at university who have, the, have had support arrangements in the past, but that they haven't then heard of the DSA systems and they haven't been advised of a formal diagnosis. So sort of, again, this question of, of transitions um, and, and, yeah, how can we really start to bridge that gap? Well, the... The Office for Students is, is really on this in relation to access and participation statements. They're very interested in knowing how that gap can be bridged and what universities are doing at a strategic level. But at an operational level, I think it's incredibly important that people involved in the transition from one phase to another have a very, very clear understanding of what is on offer in the uh, in, in the progression to higher education, for example. So things like the DSA, if you apply, it's very often the case you start university and your DSA is not in place at the moment when you need the support more than anything else. And I think it's about almost bespoke regional relationships between schools, colleges and universities, because even if a student isn't progressing to a university in their region, the, the um, structures are the same in relation to the DSA. So, for example, when I was at LSE, we used to hold an ev event with SOAS for transition teachers, careers advisors, um, pupils, and we tell them all about what was on offer at university. And we brought in loads of students from the University of Greenwich to do this. And I, th I felt really alarmed that they were always amazed. And I'm sure it's changed since then, but... It's, it's about um, joined up thinking and relationships to bridge the gap between the stages. And it's also about widening participation beyond the front door. Once students have started, you know, the, a, a supportive first year with study skills and everything else built in. So they're not expected then to hit the ground running and do things that they maybe didn't have to do during their BTEC, their A-levels, whatever it is. I don't know if that's helpful. It, it's such an important point, and, and we are going to have to close shortly, but I think that's such an important point to end with, that idea that widening participation, as with kind of universal design for learning, is really good for everybody when we when we do it well. Um, and so, yeah, this, uh, as with many aspects of inclusion, this kind of really widely spread benefit. Um, I, I just want to bring in uh, Yara's uh, comment that's come in here about sort of a largely a Eurocentric approach approach to inclusion and inclusive approaches to teaching that we have here and so although I don't think we quite have time to go into the many other ways we could be thinking about this um, just if anybody did want to make any final comment on on kind of seeking more diverse approaches um, uh, I just wanted to, to put that out there uh, before we close. Just it is a Eurocentric approach in many ways and I always caution my students when they're talking about inclusion being sort of a global thing because universal primary education was aspirational in the Millennium Development Goals and is still part of the Sustainable Development Goals that um, access to education for everybody is not a global reality at this stage and I think one thing that universities can do is think very carefully about what they do in their global campuses in terms of their approach to equality when they're operating in other parts of the world for example but I think we always have to keep in our head that the world isn't full of people who've got enough to eat access to the internet um educational entitlement and everything else and always start from that social justice premise I think yeah yeah and our understanding of all, all these concepts could look so different in different places yeah. um 
I also want to mention Emily, I'm afraid we don't quite have time for the question, um, but Emily's question was about frameworks of provision um, for working with children in bilingual mainstream schools um, during the pandemic. And I'm sure that Yolanta would be happy if you wanted to get in touch or um, that Ambitious Up About Autism would, would have some ideas there. Um, so Emily, I do hope you get a chance to, to follow up. Um, I'm afraid we, we are going to have to close out there. It's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity for both me and I think all of you to listen to Amelia Roberts, Yolanta Lesota and Nikki Martin. Thank you very much for taking part and we're really grateful that you could find time in busy schedules to be with us today. Um, just to say again, this event is linked to the launch of an online exhibition at the LSE Library, Alf Morris and the Chronically Sick and Disabled Persons Act. Um, and so please follow the link in the chat for more details on that. Uh, and it's also part of LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative, which is a series of debates about the direction the world could and should be taking after the crisis. So many more events there for you to look out for. Um, so just a thank you again for me and um, have a good evening.